0: Welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, conversations designed to help you as you live, learn, and lead through pain. And now the host of the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, Davey Blackburn.
1: Hello, welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. I'm Davey, your host, and joining me, Aubrey Sampson, our co-host.
2: Hey, everybody. How you doing?
1: Aubrey, we're starting a marriage series. Which I'm super excited about. I'm very excited, excited about, about
2: this. Yeah, because be great.
1: marriage is a topic that every single one of us, regardless of our marital status, we are all impacted by. And That's right. So we've been wanting to do a marriage series for a long time, and uh, we finally feel like we had uh, ki- kind of the enough un- enough episodes to really pad this series really well. So this is going to be on the first the first episode that we are releasing this with is a conversation with Leslie Vernick. And um, we're going to be doing this for the next several weeks. I'm really excited.
2: And we also have a resident counselor for this series, Nicole Zazowski. She will be in episode 152 yep. in the series as well. That's and she's right. got a lot of wisdom to bring a to A
1: lot. Us. And I'm so glad that you're the one that keeps saying her name every time we say it. I have decided <laughs> I'm not going to say her name because I I'm going to stumble over my words trying to say Zazowski. Zazowski.
2: Zazowski. It rhymes with Wazowski. Yeah, Mike Wazowski kind of, from uh, Monsters, Mike Inc. Mike right. Wazowski, that's right. right. I know.
1: You can tell we have kids. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's like our uh, first go-to pop culture is. reference is it Monsters, is. Inc. Right? Oh, my gosh. This, this is – okay, so we're in 2021. We are here. Is that crazy? We, we are finally, here. It's a new year. We have finally arrived into 2021. I know that 2020 yeah. has been absolutely crazy. And I know that many times we can joke – You know, we can kind of say that off – Hand a little yeah. bit, like oh, 2020. I can't wait to get you know past this year. And but the reality is, is 2020 uh, for many of us was so difficult. That's um, right. If it- you're listening to this and you've you've dealt with trauma at all in your life, you probably noticed a resurfacing of that trauma. Mm. You probably noticed that the pressure, all the different things that were happening in 2020, the pandemic, the political conversations, the race conversations, all of that stuff, that just applied a pressure that began to uh, cause some of this trauma to resurface and come out of you.
2: Absolutely. And so
1: my encouragement and our challenge to you in 2021 would be, let's let's deal with that. Let those things be red light indicators that there's still some deeper healing. That needs to happen in your life. That's good. And we have provided a way to help you with that deeper healing. We've just launched this and I'm so excited about it. It's our new and enhanced, nothing is wasted coaching process with... Certified guides.
2: I love this. I'm so excited about it. So if you are walking through something as a listener, like a specific area of hurt, yep, um, you can actually be matched with a coach who have gone, who has gone through a similar area of That's hurt, right. and they'll help walk you through a healing journey. I think this is such a profound gift that nothing yeah. is wasted is giving to the listeners.
1: Yeah. Well, what we found too is that when it comes to trauma, you know, you you can't repurpose what you don't process, and Ultimately, you can't process what you're what you're not going to own. So true. And you can't own what you don't name. Mm. But here's the deal. You can't name what you can't see. Yeah, that's so And this true. is why you need someone else walking you through a healing journey. Yeah. And we are, we absolutely believe in our pathway, the pain to purpose path. And um, we believe that these coaches, these certified guides can really help you with this. So nothingiswasted.com slash coaching if you want to find out more information on this. And um, and man, we'd love to connect you with one of our certified guides.
2: Our guest today, I'm very excited about, is Leslie Vernick. She yep. is a therapist. She ministers to women who have walked through difficult marriages, men yeah. who have walked through difficult marriages. And she has a lot of um, lived wisdom, but practical wisdom right. for right. listeners as well. I can't yeah. wait for us to... Um, learn more from her one of the things that she talks about Davy and I think this is a really important topic <laughs> especially in this marriage series is how the church, throughout history, and I'm kind of laughing because I know I'm guilty of this, has sort of elevated marriage as like the the prize, right? right the thing right. that all Christians must get to yeah, in goal. order to really be faithful. Uh, we've sort of over-sanctified yeah. marriage, which is a, a sacrament, but we've almost like idolized it, don't you right. think?
1: Oh, 100%, which causes a lot of issues because it causes you to run this race um, not with the goal of Christ, right. as Paul tells us we should. Right, striving. We, we should. We're pressing on toward Christ, but but we're running with the goal of marriage. So what it right. does is we we feel like once we get married, we've crossed the finish line. Yeah, and then it's like we're disenfranchised because we realize, oh wait, there's a lot more than just crossing the finish line of our wedding day. Yeah. But what it also does is it, um, I believe it it can cause a lot of people to you know, get married when they're not necessarily called to it. And it completely diminishes the other sanctification tools that God uses in your life. Is it true that marriage is a big sanctification tool? Absolutely. Anytime that you walk that closely with somebody else who is a human being that is other than you, that starts to like, (laughs) it starts to reflect your selfishness. You know what I mean? Right, right. Absolutely. Yes,
2: your edges are going to start uh hopefully yeah. sharpening and smoothing right. in time. God right. will use it. But it is true, you're right, that we've... I mean, I, I feel like it's sort of like how there's male bias and there's white bias. Uh-huh. There's like married people bias, yeah. right? Like yeah. we sometimes Only, I, I mean, I'm just thinking of myself in church leadership. Like when I'm preaching, am I mindful that I'm not only using examples just for using, my marriage? Yeah, am so I good. mindful that I'm not only talking to the married people? And you don't want to be cliche. Right. Like sometimes I think it's funny when a pastor will be like, Blah blah blah. Your spouse or your roommate, like all the single yeah, people, know right. that's for them, right? right? But still, we we do need to elevate singleness. Um, and like you're saying, we need to elevate the other sanctification yeah. tools that that God uses, including the body. Like yeah. whether you're married or not, you're part of the body of Christ. That's exactly right. And you're a whole person. Right. And we use each other. God uses each other to help us uh, help make us more like Jesus. That's so
1: true. Well, I mean, I think about this, right? I mean. Marriage has been a sanctification tool for me. Parenting has been a sanctification tool for me.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, loss has been a mm. massive sanctification tool for me. So there's a season where I was single, you know, as a single yeah. parent, and I was lonely. And God yeah. was teaching me a lot through that path of loneliness. There was a season for me, you know, there's a season for, for those of you guys who are listening, where you've been divorced. There's a season for while you're yes. single. Like all of those seasons, God's going to sanctify you. He's going to sanctify as long as your heart is open and it is soft to to be willing to walk in the sanctification journey with the Lord. He's going to use anything He wants to, to sanctify you. And so, you know, while I think when we look at these buckets or these pillars that He tends to use, it's, you know, yeah, but let's not make sure that, let's make sure that we don't um, isolate sanctification just to that, or like what you said, elevate these particular um, seasons of life as the only way to be sanctified or the, you know what I mean? Or the, yeah, the best the only, way the, to like be the, sanctified. The
2: goal, right? The goal, I mean, let's exactly. actually just before the Lord say, what do you have for us, God? That's and right. trust that that, whatever that is, single, married, divorce that's the best that God has for you because yeah. he's using it to make you more yeah. like him.
1: Mm-hmm. So true.
2: I'm really excited about your conversation, David, with Leslie, because she does talk about this stuff. She talks about um, kind of... Bringing marriage down a little bit Mm. off of that altar that we have put it on. And um, then she also talks about the beautiful things this marriage as well. So let's go ahead and listen to your conversation with Leslie.
1: Leslie, it's so great to have you on the podcast with me. Thanks for joining me.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, why don't you, before we dive into... Uh, all the work that you do, because it's tremendous work and some stuff that you have uh, written about. And your story is just a powerful, um, difficult story, but a very powerful one when it comes to the purpose that God is, uh, is playing out now in your life and how you're helping other people and the redemption that you're seeing. Before we dive into all of that, though, why don't you tell us a little bit about present day? Uh, tell us about where you live, what you do, your family, and then we'll dive back into your story.
0: Okay. Well, I moved three years ago from cold Philadelphia area to sunny Phoenix, Arizona. Love, love, love it, except for when it's 115, which is is today. Um, So we have a little mountain cabin about three hours north of here. So we go there in the summer, but we love Phoenix. It's wonderful here. I am a relationship coach. I used to be a licensed social worker, clinical social worker in the Um, Pennsylvania area, I had a clinical practice for over 40 years working with individuals and couples um, who had really difficult and destructive relationship issues. Mm. So I've worked from child abuse to sexual abuse to domestic violence and really have gotten my hands... um, Dirty in that water yeah. because too few Christians have really tackled that. But anyway, um, so I'm here and I'm doing a lot of work with women in destructive marriages. I have two grown children and I have three adorable, beautiful, the best grandkids in the world, <laughs> and uh, I'm having a great time.
1: Oh, that's great. Well, I'm in the Midwest, so I'm obviously jealous of you living out in Arizona and it being sunny and warm all the time. A beautiful place to to live Beautiful place to visit, and uh, I appreciate the work that you're doing. But I know the the last book that you have released is called "Emotionally Destructive Marriage," and it comes out of it's inspired by a lot of the stuff that you have been doing and the experiences that you have um, had for your in your own life. And so, I'd love for you to kind of go back and tell us a little bit about your story and what began you on this journey to help people um, in kind of the the relational. Brokenness that uh, many people find themselves in.
0: Well, it's so interesting because, you know, my story happened when I was a child. I wasn't in an emotionally destructive marriage per se. I grew up in an emotionally destructive home. Mm. And so when I was eight years old, my mother decided she no longer wanted to be married to my dad. And she left. Um, took my younger brother and sister and I in a U-Haul trailer to a one-bedroom apartment in Chicago on the north side. And we lived there with her while she um, tried to be a single mom in the 60s, which was not easy. Um, Nobody was divorced that I knew of. And so it was really an odd feeling to be a kid in a broken home, not quite sure why my mother left my father. My mother drank a lot. She was often not home. She worked as a secretary by day, and then she worked at the Playboy Club on the weekends. So she was often not home. We weren't supervised very much. She was physically, emotionally abusive, especially to me. I think as the oldest, she had higher expectations than I could live up to. And I think I reminded her of my father, who she hated. Um, It's interesting. I'm writing a chapter on a kind of a textbook right now about mental health in the church. But as I was reviewing my story, I was thinking about, you know, what happened after her um, last child was born. My brother, she had a a breakdown and my father required her to get psychiatric help. And she resisted that and didn't want to do that. So she never was treated and was uh, bipolar. She had a lot of manic episodes. And so she was dangerous. She was scary. She was tough to live with. And so by the time I was 14 years old, um, so in the eighth grade, I didn't go to school that much because I figured out a way that I could function. If I cleaned the house while my mother was at work, mm. then I could go do what I wanted and she wouldn't bother me as long as the house was somewhat clean. And so I didn't have to go to school, but I could get the house clean and go play <laughs> and hang out with my friends. And I lived in the city of Chicago, so I could go anywhere I wanted to go. And I was headed for deep trouble. Mm. And my dad had remarried. He moved out to the suburbs. He um, recommitted his life to Christ. And unbeknownst to us three children, he had been petitioning the courts for years to get custody of us because he saw what was going on with my mom and with us. And uh, the courts didn't give custody to fathers in those days, hardly ever. Yeah. But in the sovereignty of God, uh, we did. We had to go live with my dad when I was in high school. Wow. And so we had to have this huge transition where, you know, I had no rules other than don't get in my mother's way and don't aggravate her and I won't get in trouble and I won't get beaten. To now, I have to go to school every day. I've got to go to church like three times a week, twice on Sunday, once on Wednesday. I had to go to Pioneer Girls. I had to go to youth group. It was not, I was not a happy kid. Um, and I gave them a lot of grief. So anybody who's in a step family situation, I just give you a lot of uh, encouragement that my stepmother was an angel to put up with me for as long as she did. And we have a great relationship now. But the issue was I became a Christian during this time. And my youth pastor took me under his wing. I was his practice counseling client when he was going through seminary (laughs) and babysat his kids. And God got a hold of my heart. But the problem was, here I am a Christian, and I still don't know how to have a relationship with my mother. Hmm. So we're supposed to forgive. We're supposed to honor our parents. But she was still dangerous. She was still scary. Um, I went to college. I didn't invite her to my uh, college graduation. I didn't invite her to my wedding. My husband was scared of her. Mm-hmm. She could be really scary. She had remarried in one of her crazy episodes. She stabbed her husband, so he divorced her. Wow. Um, we would get calls from the psychiatric hospital. You know, what do you do with her? And she, she just wouldn't get help. And so as a Christian, and then I went to college and I went to graduate school and became a Christian counselor, I began to ask myself this question. What do you do with a relative, a family member that God calls you to honor, to Mm -hmm. love, to forgive, who's unrepentant, who's scary, who is dangerous? Do I have to let her see my kids? Am I a bad Christian because I don't want to see her and I have strong boundaries? And nobody was talking about that at that time. Nobody was having any kind of answers other than, well, God wants you to forgive and reconcile. It was impossible to reconcile with someone who was never sorry for anything they did mm. um, without being in danger for yourself and for your safety and for my children's safety. So it was a it was a huge guilt trip. It was a huge pile of confusion for me as a Christian, as a Christian counselor, mm. to navigate these waters in my own life with how do you honor a mother? How do you show care for someone who is... Um, not sorry, yeah. not repentant, not willing to talk about anything, not willing to apologize for anything. And yet you're still by blood related and biblically supposed to honor this person. Mm. So I did a lot of research. I did a lot of homework. And then of course, God brings your suffering full circle. Right. So people started coming to me with issues. And my first passion was children because mm. I was abused as a child. And although it wasn't in the church, I knew people who were being abused in the church and by church people. And so I would go to the church leaders and I would say, um, maybe you experience this too, I'm a lot older than you, but they would have this boys brigade and pioneer girls that was popular when I was a kid in high school. And so when I was married, they would have a, a church announcement, hey, we're having a sleepover for the boys brigade. Anybody need, anybody have, can volunteer to sleep with the boys in the tent? And I'm like, how do you ask a stranger yeah. to sleep with boys in a boys tent without checking them out? Right. We don't need to check them out. They're all Christians here. So the naivety and yeah. the um, blindness of church leaders to the reality of predators and wolves in sheep's clothing, whether they were predators to children or predators to women yeah. um, became very real. And so I was working out my own issues with my mom. What's my work to do? What's her work to do? I can't do her work. I can't fix this relationship by myself. And that's an incredible burden that we put on people that somehow, if you were a good enough Christian, especially for Christian women, if you're right. a good enough wife, somehow he's going to come to repentance. and somehow he's going to get his act together and you're going to have this great relationship. And I never did figure that out with my mother. And so it gave me a lot of compassion for women in my caseload as I was working with um, severely depressed women. I was writing a book on depression at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to see a lot of women who were depressed. And what I found out was I would say 80% of them were in abusive and destructive marriages. And the church had no better answer for them than suffer well for Jesus, take your antidepressant and try to make it work. Yeah. And it was awful. And so I again started digging into the scriptures. What does God say about marriage? What does he say about relationships? Judas and Jesus did not have a good relationship. Yeah. The relationship was broken and as much as Jesus tried, Judas didn't come around and repent. And I think so often we have this expectation if you're a Christian and you try really hard and you pray really hard and you say it the right way, someone's going to come back into relationship with you. And sometimes that's just not true. Right. And I think, so I've begun to tell the truth to women and mm. men who are in destructive relationships about what works, what doesn't work, what do we need to do to keep relationships going? Mm. And when they get broken, what do you need to do to repair them? Because it's not as simple as just forgiveness. Yeah. Forgiveness is important, but it's not the end of the story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's one aspect of it, but it's, cer- it's yeah. certainly not the whole of it. There's there's it's just one step in the process. You know, it's really interesting, Leslie, as you were talking about this, uh, I feel like that there, I, I hear this so many times, um, people that we coach, people that we interview, people that we have come in contact with. Um, it seems not, not in every case, but in a lot of cases, the church as a whole, struggles with helping someone um, in some of these really difficult, like really messy situations, abuse, um, you know, uh, uh, situations, especially from from a a marital standpoint. I love the example that you gave, you know, because oftentimes the church will kind of take that verse that talks about, you know, the, the unbelieving husband will be saved by her conduct and kind of use that as this... This general statement to say "This is how you need to conduct yourself if you 're in a relationship with an unbeliever or you 're in a, in an abusive relationship and just as you said it'll just it 'll just work itself out if you continue to uh, be righteous and holy and to forgive in this situation and that 's not always the case. Is there something systemic at play here within the church uh, or that has been historically that causes the church to only be able to say Well, I can kind of help you with these, but this it's, I don't really know what to do with these situations, this whole category of situations. There's something that, um, that kind of causes church leaders to from your experience and and what you're seeing, um, to not be able to go there, (laughs) I guess, to not be able to really have the tools to know how to work with people through the messiness, navigating the really difficult nuances of situations. They just want to go, okay, here's the black and white answer.
0: So, and, and I'll say this very briefly and then we can unpack it a little bit, but I think marriage in in my experience with the church has sort of become sort of the sacred Sabbath that Jesus fought about when he was mm. in his day and age where they sanctified the Sabbath so much so that the safety of people or the healing of people was not as important as following the rules of the Sabbath so that it didn't break. Remember when Jesus yep. said, hey yep. guys, who wouldn't break the Sabbath if you're child or even your ox fell in a hole, wouldn't you break the Sabbath to save it? And so we've We've created this sanctity of marriage and I believe in, I've been married 45 years to the same person. So I believe in the (laughs) sanctity of marriage, but I think we've elevated the sanctity of marriage as an institution above Mm. the safety and the sanity of the people in it. Mm. And so what we've asked women to do, and and sometimes men, but I mostly work with women in destructive marriages is to lie and pretend. And that is totally not God's will. God tells us to expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness Mm. so that they can be healed and they can be addressed. And if not, you know what you're dealing with. But instead, women are told to just elevate their husbands and be loyal and pretend everything's fine. And I don't know how—you know, when your husband becomes your enemy— when he's hurt you and, you know, in Proverbs where it says she or he trusts him to do him good, not harm all the days of his life. That's the essence right. of a good marriage. And when you can't trust your spouse not to do you harm, they become an enemy biblically. Yeah. And God still calls us to love our enemy. But I have no inkling in scripture at all that he calls us to have a relationship with our enemy mm. precisely because we can't. They're an enemy. Yeah,
1: so how do you do right.
0: that when you're married to someone who's an enemy?
1: Wow. Wow. So, you know, when you come, come across some of these, um, situations, you're working with, uh, some clients, people that you're, um, walking this and navigating the mess of their marriage and the the mess of their situation. How do you help them understand if a marriage can be reconciled, if a marriage can be, um, restored And what the necessary steps would be to do that?
0: Well, I think there's a couple of things in the Christian teaching that don't work. So if it'd be all right with you, I'd like to say that first. And one is let's put the past in the past Mm. and let's start with a clean slate. So just forget that he threatened you. Forget that he cheated on you 50 times. Forget that he's, you know, a drug addict. We're just going to put the past in the past and we're going to start with a clean slate now. And the problem with that clean slate, forget the past theology, is that it doesn't work because the past becomes the present. Mm. When you're in a destructive marriage, it's not one-time incidents or it wouldn't be called a destructive marriage. These are repeated patterns that are destructive, whether it's chronic deceit, chronic addictions, chronic abuse. And these chronic issues are not marital problems. Mm. They cause marriage problems. They are character issues. And if they don't Own, I have a character issue. If my mother wouldn't own that I have even mental illness, I need help. I have alcoholism. I need help. We can't fix our relationship until you fix what keeps breaking our relationship. Wow. right? Yep. And yep. so sometimes pastors will try to do this simplistic marriage counseling where they, yeah. they call it dif- the difference between maintenance and repairs. So if you have a beautiful home and you don't maintain it, it's not going to look very good after a week or after a month or after five years. If you never take out your garbage, if you never wash your windows, if you never sweep your floors or clean off your counters, no one's going to want to live there. And the same is true in marriage. If you don't maintain your relationship, it doesn't feel very good in five years or 10 years. But sometimes there's repair work like termites and cracks in your foundation and broken windows and leaky Mm -hmm. pipes. And if you don't repair those things in a timely way, now they cause more damage. Right. Right. And so church leaders and even people in marriage counseling, uh, curriculum in universities and Christian universities, uh, sometimes get absolutely no training Mm. in dealing with destructive elements in marriage, real abusive kind of domestic violence kind of marriages. And so they really don't know how to do it and they don't know what to say. And so they're just trying to keep the marriage together, not realizing that that's causing a lot of damage to the people in the marriage as well as the children.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I would affirm that. I mean, I went to Bible school and they don't teach you a lot of this stuff. It's really been on the job training and really failing in a lot of ways uh, of doing some, you know, pastoral counseling, uh, marriage counseling, and coming across situations where you are face to face with something where you don't know what to do. And you're like, what does the Bible say about this? You know, it seemed black and white when we were going through school, it seemed black and white. Everything was just supposed to work out really peachy as long as we followed these particular, uh, you know, mandates from scripture. And and it doesn't because there's so much nuance and there's so many mm-hmm. different types of situations. And like what you said, it 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 takes two people recognizing and, and repenting um in order for there to be restoration to to um to you know carry out in a marriage. And so I can one hundred percent affirm that. So so uh I know we're kind of bounced around a little bit, but you know, uh, speaking specifically as a pastor. If I come across situations like this and I am not equipped, I don't feel equipped, you know, maybe it's because it's not necessarily my particular gifting. Maybe I'm not shepherd counselor type gifting. Maybe I'm more, you know, uh, entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. apostolic type gifting or more teacher type gifting. What do I do? How do I help a couple who is trying to work through some of these things?
0: (laughs) Well, I think the first thing is to understand what you don't know. And so it may not be the person, you are You may not be the person who's going to help them. Mm. It may be that you have a partnership with other counselors in your area that you can refer to who do know how to help them. But let me just say some of the basics. Yeah. First of all, safety is the first criteria. Mm. So even in normal marriage counseling where couples get into tiffs and right. they fight and they right. fight ugly or they're not fighting very constructively and they're hurting each other Um, and they know that Um, one of the things that any marriage counselor would try to do or any pastor would try to do is say well why don't you take a time out when you're starting to get hot and you're starting to say the wrong thing or whatever to say you know what we need to take a break and we'll come back to this later in a destructive marriage, that doesn't happen. There is no breaks. And when there is no safety, you, you're not free to speak. You're not free to say something different. You're not free to disagree, or there's a terrible price to pay. And so when there's no safety in a relationship, you can't rebuild the relationship if you can't rebuild safety. So what does that look like? I've had tons of counseling clients that I was working with and I would teach them all about timeouts. And then they come back the next week and I'd say, you know, and they tell me about a horrible argument. i well, Didn't you do the time? No, we didn't do it. So they're not (laughs) capable of maintaining safety. And when you can't, it's sort of like a house. If you clean the house and then you light fire to it every week, Mm. I mean, pretty soon, it's just not going to stay up. Wow. And so if you can't help the individuals understand the importance of safety and valuing that, how do I honor someone's boundaries? How do I respect their no, I don't want to, um, don't do that, I don't like that? And here's where, again, in my experience with the church's misunderstanding, one of the dynamics of an abusive relationship is this power over dynamic, mm-hmm. that one ha- oppressor-oppressee biblically relationship where you don't have a choice and you don't have a voice, and typically that gets supported in a very conservative, mm-hmm. complementarian church that values headship and submission. They will not call it out for what it is Abusive control or oppressive control or coercive control over someone, that somehow that's called headship, and he should have the right to dominate, to control, to get his way all the time because he's the man, which is not biblical teaching on Mm. submission. It's not biblical teaching on headship. And yet, people who attend church may not know any better. And so the woman says, Well, I guess I'm supposed to just be quiet and a suffering servant, because that's what Jesus wants me to be. And he gets to have his way all the time. And that's the Christian marriage. Wow. And it's not true.
1: Wow. That's that's a great point. Can you, since you've brought that up, Leslie, can you um, help us understand the difference between biblical teaching on headship and submission, right? And what often it gets interpreted in the context of like what you said, generally a very conservative, complementarian environment, because I think there's probably a lot of listeners going, well, yeah, i Scripture says the husband's supposed to be head of the household. But so, where, so how do I discern what the difference what between those two? Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, and what is that, yeah. how is that not what you described as the situation there? Well,
0: it's interesting because his disciples got confused on that mm-hmm. too. Like he like, who gets to be first? Right, and exactly. I get to sit at your right hand, you know? <laughs> so they so were true. getting confused over headship so too. True. And so Jesus made it really crystal clear. He said, first, I'm going to show you what it looks like. And then he gets down on his knees and he washes mm. their dirty feet. And then he says, hey, guys, you know, the Gentiles, how they do headship, you know, how they lord over one another Mm. and they rule over one another with authority. Not so Mm. with you. Mm. So he's very clear. Headship doesn't mean you get to boss everyone around. You get your way all the time. That has a different biblical word. It's called oppressor Mm. and selfish." Wow. When he's talking about headship, what he's saying is men, you get the opportunity to lead in servanthood. Hmm. You get the opportunity to lead in servanthood. And when a man leads in servanthood, that is very endearing to a wife. And to their children, because he's not saying, I'm the head. I get to pick my way out. We want to go on vacation. I get to make the final choice because I want to go to the mountains mm. and that I want this car. I want to spend my money this way and I'm the head. So I get to make that final say. And so many churches kind of indirectly reinforce that attitude of entitlement, mm. which is just blatant selfishness, the Bible says. Yeah. And so headship is that I take my role as an example of of a leader, seriously, by serving my family humbly. That's what Jesus showed his disciples to do. Not bossing them around or oppressing them. And in every single example of oppressor-oppressee relationship in Scripture, God is on the side of the oppressed, Mm. not the oppressor. Wow.
1: Wow. Man, that's such a great reminder for all of us because, you know, the, the, the toxin that likes to creep its way into every relationship is selfishness and self-centeredness and I want my way, right? Isn't that what Jesus yeah. said? Um, and
0: so let's not make it into a biblical yeah. right because exactly. you're a man. Right. it's craziness.
1: Right. What is? What did James say? James chapter four, he says, why are there fights and quarrels among you? Well, it's because you want what you want when you want it. You want and, what you
3: want. Yeah. And, and,
1: and so if we model our lives after Jesus's life, and in Philippians 2, right, he gave us the greatest example of that by humbling himself mm-hmm. um, as a servant, even, even unto death on a cross. Um, I mean, what a powerful yeah. thing. That's such a great—I appreciate you parsing that out. And, and I, th- I like this idea of safety because I think that can also get a little bit convoluted for us sometimes because I think sometimes people think when they think safety, they think just physical safety, but that's not just what you're talking about. You're talking no, about emotional so, safety too.
0: Emotional safety yeah. and also sexual safety. Mm. You know, I can't tell you the number of women who have been sexually raped, horribly sexually yeah. abused in their marriage, and they will go to their church. And mm. their church will say, well, First Corinthians 7 says you don't have a right to say no. Like somehow being married wow. takes a woman's right away to choose. Yeah. And And again, if you look at that passage biblically— the really interesting thing about that whole passage was Paul speaking into a very patriarchal, hierarchical, slave, yeah. oppressed culture. And the interesting thing about it, everybody, I mean, the context was that Christians were thinking abstinence was better. So he's speaking, Hey, if you're married, that's not true. Mm. You can have sex and you should have sex. It's a good thing. So he's yeah. speaking against that mindset. But then the most interesting thing about that passage, every single woman who was reading that knew her conjugal duties she was mm. an oppressed person in a relationship usually and so that the the word that the game changer is here your body's not your own and likewise yeah. guys right the same rules apply to you now marriage isn't like this it's like this it's
1: equal yeah
0: that was radical
1: yeah that's so good that's so good One thing we say a lot at Nothing Is Wasted is pain is the common denominator of life. It's something that brings us all together. Unfortunately, what is not as common is actually getting the help we need for what we're going through. Beyond the encouragement, hope, and resources that we provide as a ministry, we believe there is a need for everyone to have a good counselor. I've been in counseling for years, as have most of our team, so we personally know the benefits of this tool in our lives. This is why we've partnered with an incredible online worldwide organization called Faithful Counseling, who provides virtual counseling with licensed therapists who are all certified by their own state's board. If you're seeking traditional mental health counseling, but would prefer hearing from a Christian perspective, Faithful Counseling may be a great option for you. Once you're matched with a counselor in 24 hours or less, you can connect with them anytime via your computer, tablet, or mobile phone. Through video calls, phone calls, or even the convenience of text messaging. Faithful Counseling is not a crisis line, but it can be an incredible resource in your healing journey. It only costs $65 a week, and financial aid is available to those who qualify, which you can apply for during the sign-up process. To learn more, go to faithfulcounseling.com slash nothingiswasted. If you sign up through that link only, you will receive 10% off of your first month of counseling just for being a part of the Nothing Is Wasted family. Again, that's faithfulcounseling.com slash wasted, And now, back to our interview. So if someone's listening to this and they're trying to, you know, they're like, man, I wonder if I am in a situation right now where um, something needs to be addressed. You know, it feels a little bit like it's it's you know top heavy or it's out of balance or whatever in my marriage um sounds like safety the evaluation of safety you know, your own introspective, do I feel safe physically, emotionally, sexually? Do I? That's the, financially, kind of the first step, even Financially, even spiritually,
0: because sometimes there's a spiritual oppression that's uh, going on as well. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, okay. Before I ask the question I was about to ask, can you explain that? Can you explain spiritual oppression? What does that look like? Sure.
0: So, so I'm the head. I get my way. You're not allowed to say no. You're being a Jezebel spirit. You're being rebellious. Mm-hmm. You're being an unsubmissive wife. God says, I'm the head. I get to make these decisions and you're in rebellion. All right. So now an untaught woman who doesn't understand the scriptures yeah. is getting bullied not only by her husband, but by God, hmm. because now God says you're bad.
1: Wow. Wow. Yeah. So safety is the first evaluation. What's, what's next after that? If someone's going, okay, I don't, I don't feel safe. So what do I do? Because I want this marriage to really work. I want to try to find restoration in this, and maybe there needs to be some enlightenment, some education. We both need to learn some things. Uh, I need to see if he has a repentant heart about this. So what do I do?
0: So she needs to do some more. So I I have four steps of working with individuals and couples. The first is safety, Hmm. and you can't even speak up for yourself if you're not safe. Okay. It's interesting, during this COVID, I have a large group of women that belong to a membership group of mine, Christian Women in Destructive Marriages, and it's called Conquer. And over the last four months, we've had three husbands kill themselves. Jeez. Um, And I firmly believe that if the wife wasn't educated on safety and understanding the signs and watching out, it could have been a homicide murder.
1: Oh, geez.
0: And we read about it all the time in the news. And so really educating a woman on what are the signs to look out for, for danger, for your safety in every way, not just physically, but mentally. If you're you're having a nervous breakdown um, and you're taking Xanax and drinking vodka in order to be able to have sex with your husband, there's something wrong pay attention, Mm -hmm. pay attention. And it's not just safety, like danger of being killed in domestic violence. I remember working with a a wonderful woman. She was a homeschool mom. She was a godly woman. She was living with a very oppressive man who went to a very patriarchal church who believed in all of this oppression. Mm -hmm. And she was Mm -hmm. just getting more and more squashed. And she was coming to me actually when I wrote a second book called How to Act Right When Your Spouse Acts Wrong. So she's like, mm-hmm. all right, so how do I do this when he's acting so wrong? How do I act right? right. And she was trying to, you know, be forgiving and all of th- And I didn't say that in the book, but she was trying to do all the stuff that her church was trying to advise her to do. So she takes the kids to the doctor. She had five children, um, ages 3 to 12 or something. And they were going to homeschool, so they were just going for their physical. And the doctor pulls her into the um, waiting room or the office and he says, Tell me what's going on at home. Hmm. And she goes, like what? You know, like one of the kids spilled the beans or something. And he wasn't physically abusive. He was just so oppressive that nobody could breathe. And he said, well, every single one of your children has high blood pressure, including, and you do too. So there's something going on in your house. Wow. So now the toxicity of this oppressive environment is making them sick. Yeah that's safety. Wow.
1: So safety is the first one. The second step, you said you have four steps here. Would you mind laying those four things out there?
0: Yeah. So the next step is sanity. Sanity.
1: Okay. So
0: so God says that we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. And there's a lot of wrong thinking on both sides of the street when you're in an oppressive situation. So women, you know, God wants me to suffer, God hates divorce, I can't do it on my own, Mm. if I really love him enough, maybe he'll change. There's a lot of wrong thinking that they need to understand what they're responsible for, what they're not responsible for. And one of the things they are responsible for is stewarding their own safety, the prudency, danger, and take refuge. They're also responsible to steward their children's safety. And if there's danger in any of those areas, high blood pressure, this woman decided to separate in order to give her husband a wake-up call. We can't live like this, right? So she began to get clear-minded, sane Sanity as she began to do her work. This is an abusive relationship. This isn't safe. I can speak the truth in love, but I can't speak it at home because I will get Mm -hmm. a lecture for two hours. I have to separate to be able to speak freely because I Mm -hmm. have to have a place to go to get away from him. So that was her sanity. Mm -hmm. His sanity, so he came for counseling. Uh, He didn't come for counseling, he came to tell on her. (laughs) about why she wasn't doing things right. And he brought his pastor with him. And I said, is there anything that you're doing to contribute to the misery of this marriage?
3: Hmm.
0: No, I'm being a godly husband. There wasn't any way I could get in. Anything I said, he had a million excuses for, a million justifications, began to attack me. And so when someone isn't willing to see, like the Pharisees, Jesus says it's not our sin. I mean, everybody sins. So it's not our sin in relationships that break it apart. It's our blindness. We won't see it. We refuse to hear feedback from people who have our best interests in mind. Jesus said to the Pharisees, as bold as he could, you're whitewashed tombs, you're dead inside. They didn't want to hear it. Instead, they wanted to kill him.
1: Wow. So safety and sanity is the second thing. And so, then, helping,
0: and so if somebody does want to change, if I were working right. with an abusive man and yeah. he said, you know, yes, I've been a liar, yes, I've been a cheater, Which, yes, I've been a
1: How often been does that me. happen to you, Leslie? I mean, what would you say? Very small. <laughs> I was curious. Because, of, I, yeah. yeah, oftentimes,
0: yeah. you know, you have a lot of narcissistic tendencies in these kind of people. Yeah. And if there's tendencies, maybe a little bit of insight, if there's, you know, the full blown narcissism personality disorder. It's not that they can't change. Mm. They see no need to change. Mm. They see no need to change. I I use this example. So here's my cell phone. So a narcissist or a person with a completely selfish, prideful heart, we'll use a biblical terms for that, um, doesn't see people as people. They see them as objects. Mm. So my cell phone is wonderful. It does exactly what I want. It gives me what I need. But if it doesn't, I'm going to discard it. Mm. I don't care about my cell phone. I don't think about, well, did you, are you clean? Do I need to take care of you? I don't think about it at all as having any any needs at all. It's only here to serve me. That's how a destructive individual typically thinks. And so they have no reason to change because they're fine. Mm -hmm. It's everybody else who's got the problem.
1: Well, and I was going to say that I'm sure more often than not, you're finding situations where you're you're kind of leading these ladies to the, to the water and they're recognizing this is not going to change. Right. So what's, what's kind of the next step if they're not, if they if they recognize, man, this isn't, there's, we're running up against a wall right here over and over mm-hmm. and over. We've tried everything. How do we, well, what's the next step there?
0: So the next step is assessing their danger yeah. and where they're at with their children. And if he's a good dad, um, if he's not a good dad uh, and he's not a good husband, it might be that she needs to separate for a bigger wake-up call to see if that begins to mm. open his eyes. Often not, but it might. Um, if he's a really pretty good dad and domestic violence is called domestic abuse because it's interpersonal violence. It's usually directed toward the spouse, not always the children. Um, If he's generally a good dad, if she can begin to strengthen herself so that she's not as easily intimidated and is easily bullied by him and begin to hold her own without collapsing into depression or all of that physical illness, um, she might begin to think about how do I stay well? So, we have two kind of staying well leaving well. How do I stay well because there's lots of women who stay because they're too afraid to leave they're um they're so sick by the time they get in their fifties and they've had a thirty year marriage of all that high blood pressure and mm-hmm. you know cortisol releases from a, you know the adrenaline rush and all of that from safety issues yeah. that they're just their body is worn down they can't even work they can't get out yeah. and so so we really educate them about that and then they have to make some hard decisions. so is it in their children's best interest right now? for them to stay? And what does that look like to stay well? And often it means I have to detach from any expectations of a loving mutual marriage. Mm. I have to detach from that. And how do I live as best I can with someone I don't trust and don't feel safe with?
1: Wow. Wow.
0: That's a tough pill to swallow for a lot of women.
1: Yeah. Sometimes
0: that's what their best option is. And I think that's what gives them power though, because part of helping a woman get sane is to realize she does have choices
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and that she needs to make them. And I can't make them for her and her pastor shouldn't make them for her or her counselor, because now she's still being controlled. Mm. Even if it's by a benevolent dictator, she's still being controlled. So she needs to grow up into her full adulthood and decide and make some choices based on what she has before her. And they might not be permanent choices, but they might be for now. Mm. This is what I need to do.
1: Yeah. I'm going to ask you a really unorthodox question, but this this has me very curious because we interact with so many different um, couples who have really difficult stories from their past, but they're seeing God rebuild their story. They're seeing redemption come out of it. In a lot of those cases, uh, it is um, a situation just like what you described, a divorce ensues and then she remarries and now there's a new relationship here and they're trying to figure out how to kind of reset, you know, after these patterns for years and years of, you know, feeling unsafe and uh, the trauma that ensues from that. So if I'm, if I'm, let's say I'm a husband who has married um, someone who has experienced this in a previous marriage, how do I help her to feel safe? Because I'm sure that it's almost like you have to kind of go, it seems like you have to go above and beyond, you know, even further than what you would normally do to try to over, not overcorrect, that's not the right word, but overwrite, you know, override some of the tendencies that the trauma of of her past has created but mm-hmm. if you're you know, sitting down with a couple and this is their situation, how would you advise them to kind of operate their relationship? It's different than it's like, hey, you're 22. You don't really have anything in your past. You're just starting out in marriage. Here we go. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. here's all this stuff stacked up. Although
0: you might have stuff in your past from your childhood. You might have been sexually abused and all of those kind of things. So everybody comes in with some suitcases. Absolutely. But um, I, I think we need to distinguish the term unsafe yeah. and uncomfortable. Okay. Because sometimes people, people, like when someone's, like when I start to help women speak up and tell their husband, hey, you know, I don't know if I want to be married to you anymore. I don't feel safe or you don't, you know, you don't treat me right. Oh, that makes me feel unsafe. We can't talk about it. You know, they'll use language um, to control the situation. And sometimes that even happens, you know, with wounded people that they're so sensitive or hypersensitive that uncomfortable feels unsafe. I got and you. I think if you're going to grow in any way, you got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, that's good.
0: So uncomfortableness isn't the same as being unsafe.
1: Hmm. Wow. That's right? a great distinction. Yeah.
0: So, yeah. So I think that's the first distinction I would begin to look at. But, but, I, but let me give you an analogy. Let's say that you married somebody who had been badly burned in a fire. And so they've got really sensitive skin Mm -hmm. and you're like upset because they don't want to go to the beach Mm. because the sun is just too hot for them. And you're like, but it's, it's, you know, the kids want to go to the beach and you know, you're going to have to be sensitive that there are some scars here that aren't going away. And if you're not prepared to understand that and you're going to make fun of that or criticize that or expect her to be as if she wasn't scarred, then you're not marrying the right person because you have to marry the person they are, not who you think they should be. Mm. And if you already know ahead of time, that's their baggage and they're telling you, it hurts to be in the sun. And even if you, even if you wanted to hug me, if you hug me too tight, that hurts.
1: Yeah, wow. Y-
0: you're going to have to listen to that and say, I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to harm you. Thanks for telling me versus oh, I can't do anything right here and yeah. then it becomes about me.
1: Hmm. Wow, that's really good. So, you know, obviously, you do a lot of work, not just with marriages, but also in other relationships. And some of these principles are true, they carry over, uh, transferable into these other relationships. But um, what do you see are kind of some keys in discerning the same thing in other types of relationships? You know, obviously, marriage is a little bit Well, it's a lot a bit more difficult to sever a marriage, especially when, you know, there's all kinds of different varying factors involved and kids are involved and there's, um, you know, our hearts wanting to follow after scripture and the sanctity of marriage and, you know, all of the different Mm -hmm. teaching that surrounds that, that can be, uh, good and bad all at the same time that influences our decision to sever a marriage. But you've got other types of relationships that are also emotionally destructive Mm -hmm. Um, how do we evaluate those in terms of whether we should keep those relationships in our lives or whether we shouldn't?
0: Well, I think we can keep people in our lives who are family members, both family members in the God, you know, God's family, people in the church, and people who are in our family who might be toxic or whatever, as long as we're capable of maintaining good boundaries. Mm -hmm. Um I think when we talk about relationships, you know, when you talk about inner circle, close relationships, there's two factors that must occur if you're going to be close to someone, whether it's a parent, whether it's going to be a spouse, whether it's going to be adult child to parent, whether it's going to be two good friends, if you don't have trust and safety. You don't have a good relationship with that person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that I can't hang out with somebody who I don't trust and go have a great time at a baseball game or go to a church picnic and have a conversation with someone who I don't trust. I'm not going to tell right. them my secrets or my story or I'm not going to go in a car with them by myself. But I can have a conversation and be friendly. Right. But I can't have a relationship where God calls us to be intimate in fellowship mm-hmm. with someone I don't feel safe with yeah. or I don't trust. And so I think putting that burden on people's back that you have to have a relationship with anybody who wants one with you, even (laughs) if you don't like that person or you don't trust them or you don't feel safe with them, especially that burden goes on women. I think more than men like somehow just be nice and don't hurt their feelings. And, you know, and so now you have to be in this relationship with people that you don't want to be in a relationship with. I don't think that's required. I think we can be kind and respectful and, you know, in, enjoy people's yeah. good parts in a, as a distant kind of way um, at a family mm-hmm. gathering or whatever. But, you know, and I think this, this whole thing of trust, again, the church so misteaches that because they use, you know, a love believes all things. Yeah. A love always trusts. Well, love always trusts the truth. Love rejoices mm-hmm. in the truth, right? So if the truth is, for example, my brother has sexually molested my children mm. for me to forget that yeah. and just trust him, yeah. would be foolishness the bible tells us in proverbs putting confidence in an, or trust in an unstable person is like walking on a broken foot hmm. stupid yep and so sometimes we have to have that permission to be discerning that this person has broken trust they're not trustworthy they're dangerous they could cause harm to my child no we don't just forgive them and put them in charge of the children again yeah right There are consequences of sin, and sometimes those consequences are permanent. And I think in the church, we've been so heavy on grace, and I'm all for grace. I love grace and mercy. But we've said somehow that means consequences and relationship damage go away, and that's not true. If I'm reckless and I drive a car and I kill somebody because I was texting, I could be genuinely repentant and that person's not coming back to life.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I've always kind of chosen to look at forgiveness as a couple different things. There's forgiveness and then there's reconciliation and then there's the full Mm -hmm. restoration of relationship. And those are three different things, three very distinct things. And forgiveness is something that we can practice, but, but to the, to the extent that it is releasing that bitterness Mm -hmm. in our own heart. And
0: that's what we do because of our relationship with God.
1: Exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. We become that conduit of forgiveness, Mm -hmm. not holding that uh, account, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But it does not mean that that person has to be let right back into our life in the same capacity that they were before. In fact, that would be foolish uh, in some situations, many situations. So.
0: In so many relationships, the church would understand that. Like yeah. if you had an employee who right. stole from you regularly, nobody would say, you need to trust him again and hire him back. Just trust him. Yeah. God, he's art. But in marriage, that's what happens. Mm. Like somehow you've got to trust this man who's untrustworthy. Yeah. He's cheated on you. He's lied to you. He's stolen from you. And somehow you've got to let him back in and trust him. How do you do that without ha- betraying everything in your body that knows it's not
1: true? Yeah. Yeah. Whew. And this is such a difficult conversation because even talking about, you know, the idea of, okay, there's some things that maybe some difficult decisions that need to be made to step out of a a marriage, you know, that all of a sudden, you know, it can make many people feel uncomfortable, especially in the church, because it's the, you know, the big D word divorce. Mm -hmm. And this has put this massive, we've put this massive, you know, Scarlet A, so to speak on this topic. And, you know, some people some people are going to use that with license and they're going to just kind of, right. and, and that's, that's one thing. But I, I I think that it's really important for us to also talk through the idea that there are lots of different situations where divorce is the right thing. And although it, it is damaging and it's, and it's very hurtful and it's very, you know, God, God, that's not God, what God wants for us. He also doesn't want for us to be an, an emotionally destructive um, or physically destructive situation because we are his children.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting. I don't know how much you've studied um, trauma and the effects of trauma. And so again, typically the church's answers, well, it's better for the children. Well, According, I mean, I've been doing this work for a long time now. So I have women who stayed and did that. It's according to the children. Now the children are grown up and they're abusing their own kids or they're abusing their wives. And it's the sins of the parents pass on to the next generation. But a really interesting study, I don't have it, but you can probably Google it, was done on trauma um, generationally. And they uh, shocked white mice. Uh, They took... um, cherry blossom smell and they put it and let them smell it and then they shocked them. And of course, then the mice hated the smell of cherry blossoms, right? You know, every time they brought a cherry blossom, of course they got all tense and afraid they're going to get shocked. And then they bred those mice and their babies felt the same way about cherry blossoms. Wow. And then they bred those mice again and the grandbabies felt the same way about cherry blossoms. Never got shocked, but the brain wiring changed and it impacted the genes.
1: Man. Wow. It seems to me it's one of those things where it's it's one of those situations where we have to hold two things in tension, you know? I feel like life is so much about that. It's like mm-hmm. yeah. it's not an either or in a lot of situations. Yeah. Not it's not either you really revere the sanctity of marriage or you step into divorce. It's no, there we we should revere the sanctity of marriage and there's many different types of situations where divorce is the right next step.
0: And really, you know, just like you said, you didn't learn much about relationship in school. I just talked to a graduate from Grand Canyon University here in Phoenix, and I was saying, okay, so what'd you learn about relationships? <laughs> I learned not to have sex before I got married. Yeah. That was it. Precisely. That was like the big teaching. <laughs> I think we do as a long major, as you don't have sex before you get married, major it's going to
1: work. <laughs> <laughs> curriculum for sure. Because that's all the situations that you run into. Yeah. You run into relational situations. That's what pastoring is, is people. Exactly.
0: And, exactly. And, and we're so, learning
1: all this stuff on theology. Not bad thing. I love theology. Yeah. I think it's yeah. important, but only if it only if it really can speak into and inform our activity and our relationship. Well, and God
0: says your two most important all the commandments have to do with relationships. Right. Either a relationship with God or a relationship with one another. That's two right. commandments love God, love others. Well when you mess that up because of sin How do you repair that? Mm. And I think that's where we fail in in our teaching and in our counseling to really give people good advice. And so let me just say a couple more things for someone who might be listening who is aware that they've messed their relationships up. Mm. Because one of the things that I help people do, and this is true for anybody who wants a healthy relationship, is that you need some EQ, some emotional intelligence. And you need to have a good dose of self-awareness. So instead of blaming everybody for your mistakes or this is why I did this, you pushed my buttons. It's your fault. I beat you up because you didn't submit. Hey, I don't know how to handle my anger. I don't know how to handle my emotions. I have to do my own work. That's a dose of self-awareness that can help you make a change. Because if it's never your fault and it's everybody else's fault, then, of course, life has to go perfect in order for you to be a decent person. And that's just not going to ever happen. So you have to get some self-awareness. And that's where we have failed in... Helping couples, because oftentimes when you have a couple sitting before you and you see the wife being a sinner as she's going to be, and so he's saying, well, that's why I act the way I do and the pastor's going, "Well, why act in that way and which further excuses right, exactly. his behavior yeah. right, and so really helping that's why it's that sanity stage and separating them for safety and helping him address his issues and the lies that he believes like it's not my fault if she pushes my buttons, I have every right to react this way and hurt her. Um, or she doesn't give me enough sex. I have every right to watch porn or have whatever excuses right, he's using right. in his head for his behavior. Mm-hmm. So self-awareness is such an important part. And we don't teach that really well. And then the other piece that we get uncomfortable with in the church, with leaders, you said in other relationships is feedback. Mm-hmm. So when someone gives you feedback, yeah. if I were to give my pastor feedback, <laughs> I have given my pastor at times feedback and said, I'm not sure... I'm happy with the way you preached the sermon mm. because I don't think David and Bathsheba had an affair. Actually, I think she was raped. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think <laughs> right. she had a choice. Right? Okay. This isn't an affair thing. This is a yeah, set- you're not going
1: to say no to the king.
0: <laughs> David, Yeah. How do you say no to the king? Yeah. David abused his power. That's mm-hmm. what that's what Nathan said to you. You abused your power. You took something that wasn't yours. Yeah. And when someone won't listen to feedback then they can't become more self-aware, right? If you don't look in the mirror, you will never know you've got broccoli in your teeth or you will never know that, you know, you've got dirt on your face. And so we have to begin to help people receive feedback and it makes them uncomfortable. You feel a little, your ego's wounded, Right. right? right? But if we can't allow a couple, if I can't tell my husband, you're really harsh with your words with the kids,
1: mm. or he
0: can't tell me those things. We can't grow together as a couple. We can't fix things.
1: Right. That's good. Because if
0: it's wounding your ego and it's threatening you that I tell you that things are broken and I'm upset that they're not getting fixed and you're ignoring things, how can we fix them?
1: Wow. That's so good. So interesting that you mentioned that. I just listened to a podcast this morning. It was a leadership business podcast, but they were talking about the exact same thing about this kind of, uh, putting down the defensive walls when yeah. you ask for, especially when you ask for feedback, but certainly just allowing a culture, creating a culture and whatever you're, um, if you're a leader of anything, right? Creating this culture where you can receive feedback. You're a safe person to receive that feedback. Yeah, Cause you're not going to come back
0: it safe for people to yeah. tell you the truth. The emperor's new clothes.
1: Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So maybe the Lord wants me to hear that. Maybe that's why I've heard it twice now today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's, that's such a great, great. Um, I think that's life. I think it's transformational when we do, when we can put down our pride yeah. and say, yeah, this is, yeah. I need, I, I need to receive this. I need to receive this feedback. And even if it, even if ninety percent of it is off, there's ten percent that you can still take ownership mm-hmm. of and say, "Yep, yeah, you know what? That I need that, that. I need to work on that."
0: Yeah, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness, right, That's that great. they give me this feedback. And I think, you know, and especially when you're working with rebuilding any kind of trust or any kind of safety in a marriage, if if she says to him, "You're scaring me right now," or "Hey, I'm telling you no three times and you're not listening." And she can't give him that feedback without him exploding all over her. Now we're right back to ground zero because I don't trust you anymore. But if he said, wow, I wasn't paying attention and I'm really sorry, I'll leave now. That's, that's progress, right? Not perfection, but progress. I've listened to you. I've stopped myself. I've self-corrected and I'm going to keep you safe.
1: That's good. That's good. Leslie, this has been awesome. I feel like I could ask you questions about relationships for hours and hours and hours on end, which many of our listeners might want to do that. So, how do they get connected with you? How do they follow what you're doing?
0: Yeah. So, I have a lot of videos on YouTube, little short ones about relationships on one little specific thing. I have a lot of um, Facebook lives I do on my Facebook channel, um, I'm my Facebook page, Enriching the Relationships That Matter Most. Yeah. Um, and I have a lot of different coaching classes that we do on my website. So just go to leslieburnick.com and look around.
1: That's great. Well, thanks so much for joining us. This has been absolutely uh, delightful for me personally. I feel like I just got a personal coaching session, counseling session. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much. and so uh, And I know that it's going to be transformational for so many of our listeners. Thanks for joining me.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: Thank you so much to Leslie Vernick for being with us and for offering such wisdom. I, I'm going to listen to that interview again and again and again, because yeah. I think she has just like treasure troves so good. of goodness for us to learn from. So good. I'm also really excited because this is our first counselor spot with mm-hmm. Nicole Zazowski. And um, I want us to hear what she has to say about this topic of marriage. So let's go ahead and listen to Nicole.
3: What a powerful conversation we just heard between Davy Blackburn and Leslie Vernick. I really appreciated Leslie's vulnerability in sharing her personal story and how her own upbringing led to her powerful work with difficult and destructive relationships. There are two elements that are essential to our emotional survival as human beings, and they are love and trust. Love is important because it informs us about our identity. It tells us who we are. It informs us about our significance, our worth, our value as human beings. And trust is important because it informs us about our sense of safety and security. And Leslie gave us so many important insights about safety in particular. And I'm so glad she did because even though it's one of two essential elements, Uh, We don't talk about it nearly as often as we talk about love. And sadly, when we do talk about it, even in Christian circles, we often don't talk about it very well. And one of the things that Leslie discussed that I want to highlight is the importance of being aware of our empowerment and our choices when we feel unsafe. One of the difficult things about an unsafe relationship is the reality that there are things, likely several things, that we can't control. Perhaps most importantly, we cannot control the other person in the relationship and knowing what we're empowered to do and what we would love to be able to control. But can't is a really important distinction because when we try to control what we can't, we will very likely begin to feel powerless and become very anxious. And so knowing what we're empowered to do and naming the choices that are available to us within that empowerment is a really important truth to cling to in the midst of a situation that might feel emotionally unsafe. A journaling exercise or an exercise in session with my clients that I will often instruct them to do is to simply draw two circles on a sheet of paper and one circle represents the things that we are empowered to do in the situation, the choices that we do have, things we can put energy toward that actually make a difference. And then the other circle represents things that we would love to control but can't. And I will have the client um, list things that they are empowered to do and list things that they would love to control but can't, just as a really helpful distinction. Um, and a reminder to only put energy toward things that they're actually empowered to do as a way of trying to keep anxiety at bay um, and that powerless feeling um, at bay as well. Another theme of this conversation that I thought was really important is understanding what forgiveness is and what it is not. Forgiveness is not just letting go or simply forgetting Forgiveness that is worth anything always demands some kind of change moving forward. This requires that while we can heal and steward our feelings well, um, it requires that both parties actually do not forget so that they can both continue to walk in a new way and practice the healing that they've found. Also, forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that the relationship is restored. Certainly, if the relationship remains unsafe, the possibilities for relational restoration are very limited, if not impossible. It's important to understand that forgiveness looks different in different situations, depending on the trustworthiness in the relationship. While restoration is a beautiful thing when it's possible and safe to do so, Sometimes the only things we're empowered to do is to change our own moves so that we are not cooperating with the system that continues to hurt us. Thank you again, Leslie, for sharing so many valuable insights. And I really, really appreciated hearing and learning from your wisdom.
1: Thank you, Nicole. That was so beneficial. We're excited about hearing so more from you in this series. Hearing more from you in your episode next week. You can find Nicole at her website, www.nicolezazowski.com. Look, I said it right.
2: I'm so proud of you. Nicole Zazowski. That's That's Z-A-S-O-W-S-K-I, in case people are wondering. Thank you for
1: spelling that. That was good because I would not know how to spell that. We want to thank Sleeping at Last for providing all the music for the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. You can download his music anywhere music can be downloaded or streamed. And we want to encourage you to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It would be so great to hear from you. And um, man, it would really, I think, help other people as well, because more people would get exposed to the stories in this podcast by you reviewing it.
2: You can also follow us on Instagram at Ministries. You can follow Davy at Davy Blackburn. You can follow me at OBSAMP. And be sure to come back next week for the second part of our marriage series. I love this series again. I'm so excited about it. This time we have none other than Nicole Zazowski. Let's go ahead and listen to a clip from your conversation with her.
3: I think unknowingly, when I got married, I thought marriage would be capital I, capital T, it, mm-hmm. um, like the thing that would make me not want for anything else again. Yeah. And it does feel like a finish line, mm-hmm. and that and that was a subliminal message I think I had been mm-hmm. fed um, and bought into. Right. And you know, so what that looks like was I thought, ah, oh, you know, love from somebody else that I love will make up for all the ways it's hard to love myself. Um, And I thought that love from Jimmy would heal what someone else or something else in my past broke.